And we've all understood that there's going to come a point where a mid-tier, a mid-sized circuit, specifically ones that aren't publicly traded and ones that aren't eligible for these Save Our Screen and Save Our Stages grants, those ones that are awkwardly placed in that middle positioning, they're the ones most at risk during this period. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And this week, I am speaking with Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. We're kind of in a, you know, I don't know if you'd call it a two steps forward, one step back situation where we've had good news and we've had bad news. This week we have good news because Godzilla vs. Kong is still holding, doing well. We're going to talk with Sean about what that means. Uh, But we also have seen a lot of release date changes, a couple of big movies pushed back into later in 21 and even into 2022. And then just hours before we were set to record this podcast, there was the news that one of Southern California's most notable theater chains is not going to reopen post-pandemic. So we're going to discuss all of those topics today, try to get a sense of what they mean and where things stand. But first, let's hear from our sponsor, Daniel. Before we get started on today's discussion, a word from our sponsors, QSC. QSC announces the expansion of the QSYS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with a new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, QSYS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery just about anywhere throughout the cinema complex. Visit qsc.com forward slash podcast for more information. That is qsc.com forward slash podcast. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you to QSC. So let's look at the good news first. Let's talk about Godzilla versus Kong, which had a very strong domestic hold with a 13.88 million weekend. That's a drop of 56% for a $70 million domestic total, making it the biggest pandemic title after two weeks in release. It's at 350 million worldwide, which is terrific, especially where things are right now. So Sean, let's talk about this. What do you see in these numbers for Godzilla versus Kong? Yeah, I think uh, it generally came in, I would say, on the low end of expectations. We really kind of had to factor in a wide range of possibilities because of that Wednesday opening, uh, which is really the first time that's happened for a big release during the pandemic, where we actually had numbers for it to look at. So this comes in well ahead of the 67% drop that Wonder Woman 84 had back in December. And, you know, at the same time, this puts the movie at 70 million total, which is already passed Tenet's final domestic gross of around $58 million, I believe. So this is kind of continuing on that path that it was very obvious it was going to have after that opening. And, you know, maybe it might have a shot at hitting $100 million domestically. I think that'll really probably get a better sense of that with the third weekend drop because we're still looking at some theaters reopening with Regal having a, a staggered plan essentially lasts through May. And the next kind of wide swath of its theaters will start on the 16th. So... Yeah, I mean, it's going to be the only player out there until Mortal Kombat uh, on the 23rd, at which point it'll probably you know lose a lot of those premium screens. So either way, 
You know, the good news, I think, for an industry that's really going to be clinging on to good news for the next few months. I'm curious, where do you see a title like Demon Slayer tracking in the overall span of things? Is that just a total specialty release? For some background, this is the movie that in 2020 became the highest grossing movie in Japan, period. Like it beat Titanic, it beat Spirited Away, the Studio Ghibli movie that had held the top spot in Japan for quite a number of years. And Demon Slayer is the continuation of an anime series. So obviously it's a player in Japan. Would a specialty title like that have any real shot at doing serious business in the U.S.? I hesitate to say that it would just because those movies don't usually get a whole lot of exposure. You can almost count on one hand the ones that have, you know, you think back a couple of decades now to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or something like that, that really connected and translated well. I wouldn't say that it's impossible, but it's just very rare historically. I mean, we're definitely not seeing much by way of marketing campaign for it, or at least I haven't. I hear that anecdotally, just in conversations with some people, I hear that ticketing is fairly strong for it right now. But that it's like, what does that mean? And what are the parameters that connote strong in this case? And when when we're talking about these imports, specifically from Japan, it's, it's important to keep it in context, right? We've seen a lot of anime titles go through event cinema distributors in the past, which signals two things. It has a little bit of a wider reach than, say, a prestige or Oscar or foreign film festival title, meaning it can get to that multiplex in the center of the country. But it's probably not big enough to get into the radar of a major studio to allocate significant money behind it after acquiring it. So I think there's definitely a role that these sort of anime imports play in the market. At this point, it's still niche in the big picture. That makes total sense. Well, Demon Slayer is being distributed by Funimation, which actually is an arm of Sony, right? So, I mean, it is, in a way, a major studio, and and we're still, obviously, uh, Sony has other things on their mind right now, as as all these major studios in the U.S. do. And that is a uh, a really good segue. Thank you, Rebecca. That's a nice way to slide into talking about where we're at with uh, the release calendar. Yeah, we have had a pretty large number of release date changes come down the pipeline in the past few days. Those mainly fall into two categories, Tom Cruise movies and non-Tom Cruise movies. Which is to say that's, you know, how cinema works <laughs> overall right now, right? We have Tom Cruise <laughs> movies oh, and not Tom Cruise movies. The first and biggest change has been that Top Gun Maverick, which has been slated for release on July 2nd, 2021, has been pushed all the way back to November 19, 2021. It's certainly not a move that will be greeted with, you know, cheers of joy and leaping from exhibitors. At the same time, it is something that really makes sense given Black Widow's move to July 9th. The story that we've seen in terms of box office over the last few months is that the recovery is a slower, more laborious process, certainly, than we anticipated with markets closing, reopening, closing, reopening, both domestically and abroad. With Black Widow coming out on July 9th, Paramount does not want a title like Top Gun Maverick to have a week-long runway at the box office before Black Widow comes in and takes all the premium screens, potentially takes all the box office. You know, you kind of have to space these big earners out, get them away from other things that could potentially cannibalize your market. Uh, In other Tom Cruise news, Mission Impossible 7, previously slated for this November, 
that's now the release date that Maverick has. Mission Impossible has been pushed to next May 2022, and in turn, the next Mission Impossible movie after that, Mission Impossible 8, has been moved to 2023. We've also seen some movies come forward, granted none of them coming forward to before that Memorial Day weekend when we're starting to see new stuff come out. Sony has moved Peter Rabbit to The Runaway up to June 18th. That was previously a July film. Sony Pictures Animation has moved the fourth Hotel Transylvania movie called Hotel Transylvania Transformania forward from August 6th to July 23rd. Universal has moved the next installment of their Purge franchise forward one week from July 9th to July 2nd. And Paramount has also moved their G.I. Joe spinoff Snake Eyes from October 22nd of this year to July 23rd of this year. So that actually is a pretty substantial leap forward. Sean, what does this mean for the pace of recovery that we're going to see over the Q2, Q3? Because it looks like July is getting really, really crowded now. It does, and I think we can still safely anticipate some more moves throughout the summer. At this point, you know, this is really just becoming another example of how much of a risk-averse business this is, because within days of seeing Godzilla versus Kong do the business that it's been doing, which is still well below what it could do, but way above what it has been the case so far in the pandemic, studios are still, you know, waiting for pretty much the most optimal time to release that they can knowing that it's going to be a while before the world is anywhere near 100% theatrically. And what I really kind of think this might suggest is studios are more and more thinking that summer, especially the first half, but really at this point probably most of the summer, could end up being a one-event film per month type of slate. Maybe two as we get into the back part of August, because we also have talked about how crowded September is now and October and really just the rest of the year basically once you get into the fall. Top Gun's move, like you mentioned, going away from Black Widow, it seems obvious now, I guess, in retrospect, and it also gets it away from Fast 9, which is opening one week before where Top Gun was on that first weekend of July. So that's a big crossover that I'm sure Paramount wanted to avoid. And, you know, the last two Mission Impossible films earned about over 70% of their box office outside of North America. So it's really important to have the rest of those markets open. Speaking on Paramount, I mean, now we have A Quiet Place 2 is still slated for May 28, which puts it at about a year. We were talking about this offline. When was the last time Paramount released a wide film? And in the U.S., that was the Sonic the Hedgehog movie in February. Yeah, and I think that's the good news to take away is that A Quiet Place was nowhere in that release date change email. At this point, it is the next event film especially if we're looking at exclusive to theater types of releases. And it's probably a safer bet to stay on the calendar because it is domestic reliant. It's not going to be a film that earns two thirds or three quarters of its earnings overseas. And I think Paramount is kind of in that position of being able to set the pace now for the summer by and large, because once you get past May, we're now looking at, you know, Peter Rabbit and Hotel Transylvania. Like you mentioned, they move up their release dates. Sony is clearly confident in the potential for family movies this summer. So you combine, I think, the horror genre, which typically plays well almost any time of year, with those kinds of movies in the summer. We might not have, you know, anywhere near a normal slate that we would get during those months, but this is going to be a major step forward, provided everything can stick in place. And that's really going to be the question, because... You know, like I said, I think we probably still have some moves to watch out for. And to me, all eyes now go to Universal and Fast 9 because we know that they're going to want as much of an overseas footprint as they can get. And the clock is running down on whether to keep that June date or maybe push it back again. 
as we speak right now, I think the next trailer release for Fast 9 is scheduled for like 24 hours from now. So if you hear what sounds like a strange audio patch added to this podcast when it finally hits the airwaves, that may be because we had to amend this once the Fast 9 trailer dropped. But at this point, I mean, we've spoken about maybe one of those family titles moving up into April, into early May. At this point, it's fair to say that A Quiet Place Part 2 Memorial Day weekend is going to be the first. We're past the point of anybody moving anything up substantially into the early summer, aside from maybe, you know, changing things around by a week or two. And don't forget Cruella from Disney. That's also going to be coming out that weekend. I think that's going to be the next stress test in this market, having two wide theatrical release films simultaneously being available out there for audiences. As we know, we still are dealing with 25% capacity here in New York. Absolutely no indication from government leadership here on when or how that may change. We know that Los Angeles is now, uh, I think we're up to 50% capacity. We have seen moves that suggest that maybe as early as mid-June, we might see even more capacity than 50% in Los Angeles. But those capacity measures still in that late May slot with two wide releases coming out there from major studios, going to be very difficult to figure out that equation of 25% capacity, 50% capacity, who gets those show times, who doesn't. A crucial detail in that is that Disney's Cruella is going to be opening date on Disney Plus Premier Access. Paramount's A Quiet Place Part 2 is going exclusive to theatrical. And uh, speaking of California, Daniel, we started this podcast with the good news and then with the release date changes, we kind of went into a mixed bag type of situation. And now, unfortunately, we have to tackle the unequivocally bad news this week, which relates to the Pacific Arc Light chain of what happened there. Unfortunately, the Pacific Arc Light circuit, which is the 22nd largest circuit by screen count in North America, that's the U.S. and Canadian markets combined, as well with those Caribbean territories where Caribbean cinemas has a presence. Pacific Arclight is a regional circuit really with a large concentration in California, specifically in Southern California. They were the 22nd largest in the market, top 20 in the United States. We're talking about 234 screens, 17 locations, according to our last Giants of Exhibition ranking of the largest circuits in the domestic market. They are unfortunately not going to be reopening any of their theaters coming out of the pandemic. Really very negative news, I think, for this industry. It becomes the latest circuit in North America to report significant distress from the pandemic. As we know, before this, we had a major circuit like New Vision Theaters, which was born out of the AMC acquisition of Carmike Cinemas. Some of those locations that didn't go over, a new entity called New Vision took them over, had a couple of more theaters in that circuit. They were dissolved in 2020. At that point, I believe they were a top 25, top 30 circuit. They had been up to now the largest circuit to disappear. Other than that, we've seen some chapter 11 restructuring happening through major circuits like CMX, like Studio Movie Grill, like Alamo Draft House. Those three prior circuits I mentioned, they will be continuing to operate, be in business, despite having to close permanently some locations. But in the case of Pacific Arclight, the entire brands, all of those locations, they are now 
for the moment, permanently dark. A really a sad moment, I think, for exhibition here in the United States. We can go into what this circuit means, what's in there, what's going to happen to these theaters. But before we do, Russ, you're living in Los Angeles. You spent a lot of time there in Southern California. You're probably best positioned to let us know what Pacific and Arclight mean to Southern California's exhibition scene. It's a huge deal, and it's a huge loss. You know, the company operates a huge variety of theaters across Los Angeles, but there is certainly one, which is the Hollywood Arclight, which is attached to and also operates the Cinerama Dome that is really kind of, maybe not necessarily the heart of the Los Angeles film scene, but it's kind of a hub. Like, if you like going to movies in Los Angeles, you go to the Arclight with friends a couple times a year, at least, if not significantly more often. It's a good house. They do a lot of events. They're well known for having Q&As and guests. You often have filmmakers who show up unannounced to talk about their movies or introduce their movies. They've got a good bar and a restaurant, the whole thing. It's just one of those places that you went to. If you like movies in LA, you go to the Arclight. It's just the way it is. It's maybe not your favorite theater, but it is one of the constants. So losing that represents a huge cultural change in the landscape for film in Los Angeles. Associated with that, Pacific Theaters also operates the branded theaters at open-air malls like The Grove, the Americana at Brand, which is over east of Hollywood. And those are also very well-trafficked theaters that attract maybe a different sort of demographic spectrum than the Arclight does. You get a lot more casual moviegoers going into the Grove uh, and the Americana. Those are also big deals to lose those houses. So yeah, it's a huge blow. I think anyone who likes movies in LA was stunned last night when the word came down that those theaters were not going to reopen because everybody has a positive association with the Arclight in some way. And without knowing how or what will replace them, the LA landscape is much poorer off now than it was, you know, before losing them. Given the iconic status of the Arclight and the Dome and of the variety of different types of theaters that Pacific Arclight operates, what do you think the future is? Is someone going to swoop in and buy the Dome, acquire the Dome? What are we looking at here, do you think? With the asterisk that it's all speculation and et cetera, et cetera. Entirely speculative. The good news about the Dome specifically is that it is a protected Los Angeles historic cultural monument and has been since 1998. And that protected status means that it is probably not going to be turned into condos, which is good. That said, it's been a monument since 1998, but it was closed from 2000 to 2002. So this isn't the first time that the dome has been dark. And so is it going to stay dark for a while now? Great question. We don't know. There's no data. I've seen a variety of speculative comments. You know, everybody, including me outside the context of this podcast has already talked about what players could step in and buy the dome. But in truth, we don't have any data right now about what's going to go on with that location specifically. And that extends to all of the other theaters controlled by the group. We just don't know at this point. And it's an important point to bring up, right? We have all from day one of understanding the scope of this crisis have been expecting there to be consolidation 
in the U.S. marketplace. I think we've all been prepared for it, and we've all understood that there's going to come a point where a mid-tier, a mid-sized circuit, specifically ones that aren't publicly traded and ones that aren't eligible for these Save Our Screen and Save Our Stages grants, those ones that are awkwardly placed in that middle positioning, they're the ones most at risk during this period. Unfortunately, the largest player to date has been now Pacific Arclight. That doesn't mean that those screens are all going to be dark forever. And that doesn't mean that there are a lot of investors out there anxiously waiting to pour money into movie theaters while we are still in a pandemic. That includes uh, existing circuits, and that also includes, I think, tech companies. We've seen uh, a lot of speculation out there on a Netflix or an Amazon to swoop in and save specific locations. But let's be very clear here. We haven't seen this happen yet. Netflix owns two cinemas in the United States, one in New York, one in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles one, Russ, if I'm not mistaken, not too far from that Cinerama dome. Yeah, that's the Egyptian in Hollywood, which Netflix purchased. I think they made a deal for $14 million for that theater, and they're planning to put another $6 million in it. Or actually, my numbers might be reversed. But altogether, they've got about $20 million in that theater. And those renovations are not scheduled to be completed until the end of 2022 at the earliest. So we've already got Netflix working on significant restoration of a theater that's just down the street from the Cinerama Dome, which to me says Netflix is probably not going to be in the market for something like the Dome. Again, that's pure speculation, but informed by what we've seen happen, I would be surprised. I've seen people, you know, because Quentin Tarantino featured the Dome in his movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He also owns the New Beverly Theater, which is not too far from the Dome. I've seen people say like, oh, well, Tarantino just needs to buy it. And it's kind of like, Again, <laughs> I would be surprised. So, yeah, I don't know. I will say that those locations like the Pacific Theaters at the Grove, I would be very surprised to see those not be picked up by another circuit because those are physical locations that would, you know, they are theaters. To turn them into something else would require massive alterations and renovations. And they're placed in very good foot traffic locations. So, with parking associated and everything. So those seem like prime pickup targets for another circuit. And those are the ones that are harder to replace from a real estate perspective, right? I mean, we're talking about shopping malls that require something that brings in foot traffic. And cinemas, I think, that are in shopping malls. Now, the shopping mall sector, that's a whole other question mark. That's a whole other set of struggles that we have to put a very clear caveat in. But those cinemas, I think, as you mentioned, Russ, are in a different position than others. We've also heard other big tech names like Amazon being bandied about. Amazon, to date, has not bought a single cinema. Apple is another big tech player that we hear a lot in these conversations. Apple, to date, has not bought a single cinema. We've been hearing, you know, oh, Disney's going to buy this chain or that chain since the Paramount decrees went under now pre-pandemic. And I think it's easy to say that and to speculate right. that. But if last year has taught us anything, it's that the business realities of running a movie theater chain are not sunshine and rainbows. It's very different. But as you mentioned, Russ, there's some locations and specifically on the Pacific side of things that could very easily be turnkey acquisitions for someone that already has an investment in multiplexes. There are a number of locations 
in this circuit, and I'm thinking specifically of something like the Pacific Theater's location in Winnetka, uh, right in the north uh, side of, I'm not even sure if it's still LA County, but driving distance from Los Angeles, that has one of the most state-of-the-art, most expensive cinema screens in the world in the Samsung Onyx Cinema LED screen. This is a very exciting, cutting-edge piece of technology this can really be a turnkey potential for acquisition for a player already invested in the acquisition space that is looking to expand. So definitely negative news, but we've been saying I don't expect us to lose all of these screens moving forward. And a very positive side of this is we've also seen an outpouring of public support on social media from influential figures in the industry, very disappointed that this has taken place. Now, on, on a personal level, I would have loved to have seen some of these filmmakers come out and express that support for movie theaters when they first reopened, or maybe as late as last week for people to go or maybe get a private rental. But listen, I'll take it. I understand it's a difficult time for everyone. And I think it's important as part of the cultural conversation, having this very difficult piece of news to have significant figures in the industry come out, these filmmakers come out and say, hey, this is a major loss for our industry and for our culture. Daniel, I agree. I think that's a really good way to put it. And, you know, this news hits particularly hard as we are on this cusp of reopening. And I think it's very easy to feel like, oh, we're out of this now. Everybody's getting vaccinated. Things are changing. Cities are opening. Movies are coming out. Godzilla versus Kong is doing well. The danger has passed. And unfortunately, I think this underscores the fact that we are going to feel the effects of the past year and change for quite some time to come. And we will continue to follow and report on these changes and help all of our listeners orient themselves to what they all mean in the next months to come. So the Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was created by Daniel Luria, Rebecca Polly, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again next week. 